Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. I am skipping the story about Jesus turning the water into wine and moving to where Jesus cleanses the temple, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then his disciples remembered what that is that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. That's your sign. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And this is the word of God. Father, thank you for your word. It is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. And we thank you for it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. Your writer said the word of God is fast and makes alive and is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, and we thank you today for your word. Now your word is here. We learned a couple weeks ago, Lord, that Jesus is the eternal word. And we thank you for that. And we know that that word is here today. Your spirit is here, Lord. So now reveal to us in our hearts what you want us to know that will transform our lives beyond just knowledge, but it will affect our hearts and it will transform us more into your image and it will change our lives. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to set the stage for what's happening here In this story, in verse 13, the writer says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Inside the temple court was a place that was supposed to be meant for prayer and other acts of worship. And there were these pens set up of oxen and sheep. There were cages with pigeons and sellers sitting around waiting on them to make a transaction. They were selling the sacrificial animals. And you had another section that was set up, and they were the money changers. Just like today, if you were to go to Italy and whatever their money is called, you would need to exchange your money for uh, their form of currency. And it's all over the world. It was the same way there. At Passover, people would come from all over the world. This is what we have on the day of Pentecost. Um, Pentecost is another feast where people are coming from all over uh, to Jerusalem. They did this on Passover. People would come and offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices. 
And so they had their own form of currency. They would have to go to the money changer first, exchange your money, then go over here and buy your oxen or your sheep or your dove or whatever sacrifice was prescribed. There were priests all over the place that were telling people. They were like tour guides, answering questions about what kind of sacrifice you needed to make. It was a big event. The outward main reason why this was probably set up was that the law required sacrifices of oxen and sheep and pigeons, and many worshipers would have come from a long way traveling, and it was simply a matter of convenience. I mean, in those days, obviously, there's no cars, there's no buses, trains, planes. If I have to travel even 20 miles, that is a major journey. Uh, it's going to be a lot easier if I can just travel there and buy my animals there and not have to bring them with me. So it's really a matter of convenience why they did this. And so we go to verse 15 and 16 and we see that what Jesus is unhappy about is that they have turned His Father's house, the temple, the place of worship into something it was never meant to be. And I point this out because I don't want you to think that Jesus just lost his temper. He just went in there and he just blew his lid. He took the time, and the scripture is careful to point this out, he took the time to make a whip of cords. I don't know how long that took. I don't know exactly what he made that up, but it's not like he was just carrying around a whip and, and pulled it out. He had to find something to fashion together, and he's going to need these this whip to help drive the animals out. And the Bible says he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, this is people and animals, with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of those money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Here he is with this whip. He's driving animals. He's turning the tables over. It would be like me coming in here and just start flipping tables and things flying everywhere. Um, he gets their attention. You know, I, I get really tired of Hollywood and movies over the years portraying Jesus as some kind of mamby-pamby guy. Uh, nobody seems to step up and stop him when he's doing this. He is a general contractor. The Bible says he's a carpenter. It's generally accepted that he, he was not in a wood shop making little birdhouses, that he's a contractor. His earthly father, in a way, Joseph, uh, you would have done what your father did, and they were probably builders, likely probably some kind of masons if you look into the original languages. They were builders. They worked with their hands. Uh, the whole portrayal of even what Jesus looked like and all of that is very inaccurate uh, according to, it's not pattering after Scripture. The paintings with Jesus of long hair, with long hair, that comes from um, medieval painters who often painted subjects with, uh, as examples of themselves. It would actually be a self-portrait and they would impose Jesus, this is Jesus, but it would actually reflect the culture of that day. There's nothing historical even there that would say that Jesus had long hair. Men of that day typically didn't. So that's more cultural imposition on us than it is biblical. So here Jesus is and He's just he's tearing apart the temple. He's driving the animals out and He is successful at it. In His response in verse 16, take these things away, don't make my father's house a house of trade, Jesus did not indict them for ripping people off, although they probably were. Jesus doesn't chastise them for using animals that weren't worthy of sacrifice, although they may have been. His issue was that they had turned His Father's house into a marketplace. 
And the disciples are watching this. They're watching Jesus, this one who normally is full of long-suffering and patience and kindness, which none of that is weakness. Uh, it takes a real man to be able to portray those traits. Uh, one that is strong yet loves to have the, the children come unto them. I can think in my mind now of, of men that I've known over the years that were like that. They were strong men. They were, they were men, but yet they just portrayed such a kindness and a, and a long-suffering. And that's, the disciples are looking this, at Jesus saying, well, normally he's the one that the kids come and love to be around, but right now they're watching him turn tables over and drive animals out with a whip, the one who is full of love, using a homemade whip and letting the oxen go and throwing money boxes on the ground and saying, take these things away. And when the disciples saw all of that, in their minds, and this is how much they knew the scriptures, in their minds, their minds went to Psalm 69, where David the king says, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus was consumed with the zeal for his father's house. He is angry. He is full of holy indignation. And maybe that makes us lead the question this morning, what makes us angry? I mean, we all get angry from time to time, but is what is angering us the things that anger God? Because God does get angry. Like, read the Old Testament. God gets angry a lot. Um, he, he knows how to pour out wrath when it's appropriate. And does the things that upset God, that move God, are those the same things that move me? My Father's house, it means it's a place where God, your glory resides. A place where we can know God. David said, a day in your courts is better than a thousand days anywhere else. My Father's house. But Jesus said, my, my Father's house, that God's glory, it has been traded for man's financial gain. And the anger is directed at those who were selling and handling the money. Jesus could see through that veneer of their religious heart, uh, that, that helplessness in their heart. Because in chapter 2, later, we didn't read it, but John says that Jesus said he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. And what did he see? He saw a marketplace that was not glorifying God. It was not flowing with the love of God. It was flowing with the love of money. And it was the religion that they were using to cover up their greed. They were using religion in the name of making a dollar, masquerading as men of God while they robbed people. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it happens today uh, all the time. And where people saw success, Jesus saw hypocritical, selfish people. Paul writes, this is the Apostle Paul, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teachings that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in their mind and deprived of the truth. I love how Paul words that. They are depraved in their minds and then because of that they are deprived of truth. Imagining, now here's Paul's setting all that up with words so he can say this, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now he's talking about financial gain. 
And we know this because of the words that he wrote that I'm getting ready to read. I, I wouldn't say it was money that he's talking about, except this is what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. It's been said a thousand times from pulpits. I've never seen a U-Haul trailing a hearse. Like, there's no, you, you, can't, you can't take it with you. Um, it's just, it, it's not there. And here it is. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. He's just saying the basics, the, the basic elements of life. If we have that, in, if we have our needs met and covered, and we have godliness, we have great gain. It's, you know, Paul's doing this algebra, and I hate math, I hate algebra, but this is what Paul's doing. He's like, you know, godliness plus food and shelter and the basic needs equals great gain. You, know, like you, you need the basic stuff in life, but if you have that, you have your bases covered. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I spoke with a man for a great deal of time this week that I did not know a week ago. And for the first time in my life, I spoke with a billionaire. I spoke with a man who owns a million dollar car and owns a golf course. Uh, I spoke with a man who has more money than I'll ever be able to wrap my head around. And didn't know his name a week ago and spent hours with him and speaking with him uh, this week. Uh, but let me tell you what I know, not what I think, what I know is that all that money does not buy happiness and contentment. Not possible. There are people who are filthy rich who take their lives every day because the two are not connected. I'm not saying that someone could not be wealthy and live for God. I am saying that it is not equated according to Scripture with success. I know people who are wealthy. I've known people who were millionaires who lived for God, but I will tell you they lived a very different lifestyle than people who had equal amounts of money. Their success, their happiness was not tied in any way to what they had accumulated. I'm not saying that the ownership of money is automatically bad. I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form. But I am saying it is not what makes you a success in this life. It is not the mark of success for a child of God. I, I have to be careful with this because I can, I can almost get an attitude about it, about how much I abhor the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. The men and women, usually men, who appeal on television to send me your money. Uh, we, we need your finances. Living lavish lifestyles with private jets and appealing, living off the backs of, of widowed women. Um, that is not the gospel. That is another gospel. And I have to be careful with that because I do abhor that. And I think we see that for what it is. I think most people do. I don't think, I, I don't think anybody here today, I have to, to warn against that. What we have to watch against is more subtle forms of that. The subtle forms that come into our lives that say, well, God's blessed me so much because I have this mark of success in my bank account. Uh, that may be a blessing of God and it may be a curse. 
You don't know what that is. If I have my family and I have health and I have peace. I told someone one time, I said, this is just my opinion. I said, this is not scripture. And this was coming from someone who I was, I was praying with somebody in the altar. I was working the altar in a church. And I walked by a man and he reached out and he grabbed me and he pulled me back toward him. And he said, I need you to pray for me. He said, I have so much stuff going on right here. And I, he couldn't tell. I didn't know walking past him. And so I said, I'm going to pray for you. So I want to tell you. So what I've found is that the greatest gift, the greatest benefit of living for God after salvation has been peace just to simply to have peace. You it's worth more money. Money can't buy the peace of mind. I have a friend of mine, a man I know, who was called over to a house one night. He knew the family. His wife said he's upstairs in the bedroom. He needs your help. He went upstairs. He told me I didn't know. He said, I didn't know then. He said, but all the cash was laying around the bedroom. He said it was $200,000 in cash that the man had just taken and just thrown. And he said, the man sat there. He said, I have all this money. He said, I can buy any meal money can buy and I can't eat. He said, I could buy the most expensive mattress in the world and I can't sleep. He said, I could buy any car on the planet and I'm too scared to drive. He was shackled with fear. Couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, couldn't even drive a car. I'm saying, I'm not preaching against financial success this morning. That's not this sermon. This, the, the, the message I'm trying to get is that is not the marker of success. And that people who, some of the greatest saints of God I've ever known, they live such simple lives, but oh, they had such a prayer life. They had such a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it is about. And that is what Jesus saw, the love of money. But those, this is Paul, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. People talk about certain passages of the Bible being hard to interpret, and they really are. There's some things in Scripture I'm still scratching my head out trying to figure out. This isn't one of them. Like, this is first grade reading level. Anybody can understand. There's not symbolism. Paul just says, if you, those people that desire to be rich, they fall in, into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some may have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And this is what Jesus saw was the love, not money, the love of money. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in Luke 16, No servant can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, and he will be devoted to the one or the other. You cannot serve God and money. I just quoted Jesus Christ. You cannot serve God and money. Do I need money? Yes. I have two vehicles sitting here in the parking lot that are mine. I own them. Except if I stop making payments, the bank will show me who really owns them. I don't have the title. I need money every month to pay those vehicles, okay? Uh, I'll probably go out to eat later unless I dash and dine. Dine and dash? Yeah, you, you, wanna, you don't want to run before you eat. <laughs> dine and then dash, unless I dine and dash. Yeah, it would... Uh, they don't mind if you da dash and dine, I guess. But if you uh, don't, you know, pay for your food in the restaurant. That's, that's the sermon this morning is pay for your food. I need money to do that. 
right? I've got a light bill, an electric bill, and so do all of you. I mean, I, they're just, I tell people, it takes a lot of money just to live. Like, not just to live well, it takes a lot of money to live. Uh, and so I'm not preaching against money. I'm not saying let's all go find some land and live in a tent. That's not the sermon. The sermon is don't love the things of this world. Don't be consumed by them. Jesus' strongest rebukes were to religious people. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. We talk about hypocrites. Well, what a hypocrite meant in Jesus' time, the word he's using, is that of an actor. They, had, they were very familiar with Greek plays, tragedies, and dramas. It was somebody who pretended to be somebody else on stage. That's what the word that he's using here. You're pretending to be something that you're not, for you're clean on the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You look religious, but your motives are wrong. I don't want to be rebuked by Christ for that. His issue in the temple is my father is not being worshipped. The glory of the Lord is not here. Money is being worshipped in my Father's house. Jesus came, this is a quote from another preacher, Jesus came into the world to display the infinite worth of His Father and to vindicate His Father's honor and to free us from the killing effects of the love of money. Now what is their response to Jesus' outburst of anger? In verse 18, so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus takes their questions and he offers this two-pronged, double-layered approach. They ask, What sign are you going to show us for doing this? They were sign seekers. And Jesus answered them in verse 19, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they responded to him in verse 20, and we'll get into this in a minute about what they meant. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it? in three days. Now John adds commentary to this in the next verse and he says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So what did Jesus mean when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days? If you go into the Old Testament, and just pause here and give some context. If you go in the Old Testament, King Solomon builds this temple that is a world wonder. There may not have ever been a building since then that was built that was like what Solomon built. If you equate it to today's dollars, I didn't look it up, I've, I know it's in the billions. It is a building that's not that big that would have cost billions of dollars to build. Royalty traveled to see this building. They dedicated the building and the Bible says the priest could not stand to minister in the temple because the glory of the Lord was so strong. This was where God was worshipped. This is where God was honored was the temple. <clears throat> the Jews rebel against God and so the Babylonians come in and take the Jews away to captivity, uh, take them to modern day Iraq and they come in and they destroy Jerusalem including the temple. Well after about 70 years the Jews come back and they are allowed to rebuild the temple. And this is the second temple. So you have the first temple, the second temple. There were people who were old men when the temple was rebuilt that remembered the first temple in their childhood. And the Bible says that when they dedicated the second temple, the young men rejoiced and the old men wept. 
And the old men wept because they, the second temple was not nearly as ornate as the first temple. It was functional, but it paled in comparison to the first temple. And so the old men wept about what might have been. But the temple was rebuilt, and this is about 100 years before the Old Testament closes. You've got about 500 years of history, and then you open up the Bible, and you open up the time of Jesus, and now it's called Herod's Temple. And what Herod, Herod is the king of Israel, and what Herod has done is he's went in and he's taken, we still call it the second temple, but actually he kind of just rebuilds so much of it that there's not much of it there from the first original second temple. And he expands the temple mount where the temple sits. It's originally about 18 acres. Herod expands it to 36 acres. I'm talking about an elevated place in Jerusalem that's still there. You can go there today and visit the 36 acres that was Herod's temple. This is a very holy, sacred space. This is the place where they believe Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. This is the place where the religion of Islam believes that Muhammad ascended into the heavens. That's why today it's a holy site for the Muslims. If you're going there today, the Muslims control that section of the Temple Mount. And it's, it's a weird relationship the Israeli army is the one that protects it. So you have Israeli soldiers protecting a Muslim site. There are 11 gates. I'm talking about modern day Jerusalem today. If you were to go there, there are 11 gates. Muslims go through 10 of those gates. Unless you're Muslim, you are not allowed to go through those 10. Everybody else that's not Muslim goes through this one gate into the Temple Mount. Jews are not allowed to worship on the Temple Mount. Uh, it, it's, it's a Muslim holy site. The Jews are not allowed to go there and worship at all. Uh, so where they go to worship is, no, it's a mount. It's this elevated area, and then there's this stone wall that's original to the time of Herod. Like you can go see rocks that we know Jesus saw. Like Jesus was there. Uh, it's original. Everybody that lived 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem saw this wall, and it's called the Western Wall. It's, the, it's a massive retaining wall of the Temple Mount. And this is where the Jews pray. So if you're Jewish and you go there, they call it the Wailing Wall. So they go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, and people will go there and people who are not Jews can go there and pray. I've never been there. I have lots of friends who have been there and prayed at the wall. And people will come and they'll write prayers and they'll insert the pieces of paper between the stones. and just It's an engineering marvel. The fact that they could do this 2,000 years ago, uh, it's fascinating if you're into that sort of thing, how they were even able to accomplish building this. But I said all that to say, this is what the Jews are laughing at. When like, Herod's been building this for 46 years, and he didn't start, start from scratch. And you're saying, destroy this temple, that's the sign, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. You couldn't build that in three days today with all the technology. That wouldn't be possible. So they just think that Jesus is being absolutely absurd. But of course, John says they missed it. Jesus was talking about his body. Destroy this temple. Crucify me. Put me to death. I'll be back in three days. You are destroying this temple is what he meant. When you desecrate the worship of my father with your whitewashed greed, you destroy what this temple is and you expose it to the wrath of God. And it was indeed destroyed. In 70 AD, Titus comes in. He'll later be emperor, but at the time he's a general in the Roman army. He comes in and they destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. They go back to Rome 
and they build this arch and they put in concrete and rock a relief, a picture of the destruction of Jerusalem. Titus goes back and does that. You can go to Rome today and see the arch. You can Google it. Please not now, but later you can Google it and see this relief. It is original. These are historic events. This is not a fairy tale. Uh, you can go there and walk under the arch, uh, and it shows. What it shows is the Romans carrying away all of the relics in the temple, the seven golden candlesticks, and all of these things that they used for worship. The Romans just came, burned the city to the ground, uh, and took it all away. And that was the end of Judaism as we know it. But that was 40 years after Jesus said these words. But at another level, and this is what's more relevant to us, he's saying that same materialistic deadness to spiritual reality that destroys this temple will destroy me. Just like you kill the worship in this temple with your consumerism and your materialism, you will kill me because I and my Father are one. You're killing the, the glory of God. You're going to kill the Son of God with the same attitude. The same attitude that destroys this physical temple is going to destroy, crucify, and kill this physical temple. If you destroy his house, you're going to destroy me. If you treasure money more than you treasure my Father, you are going to treasure your own destruction, and you're going to buy it with 30 pieces of silver. So he's speaking at two levels. Destroy this temple. Destroy this temple. And then Jesus says, what does he mean by in three days I will raise it up? Jesus says later in John 10, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus is in control. These events aren't happening to Jesus. This is the sovereign work and plan of God. He laid his body down for three days for our sin. He takes it up again for his resurrection, for our resurrection so that we can have new life. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, I tell you something greater is than the temple is here, and he means himself. He said to the woman at the well in John 4, I'm excited to preach that sermon here in a few weeks, John 4. It's a wonderful story. He says, woman, believe me. Now, when Jesus says woman, it's not like we would say it to somebody that comes across different, like, hey, woman, that's not what he's saying. It would be more equivalent to ma'am. It's a... It's a term of respect. It would be like him saying, ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Christianity loses its geographical center. Go to Jerusalem for history, but don't go to Jerusalem to be closer to God. It doesn't work. There's no relics there. Christianity has no geographic center. Jesus is the true Israel. The glory of the Lord covers the earth. In other words, authentic worship will not be attached to a physical place. It will be done in spirit and in truth. It's attached to Jesus. Jesus was saying, I'm the new temple. When I raise my body from the dead anywhere in the world, you can go to Uganda or Botswana or Maine or Uruguay. It doesn't matter. Wherever you are, people may come to God through me. There's not going to be any pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, none of that exists anymore. It's Christ in me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us, this is Peter, He has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I have hope through the resurrection of Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then he says in verse 23, this is Peter speaking, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. I asked a class I was teaching a couple years ago. I said, according to Peter, how are you born again? It was a trick question because I, I knew what they all say. They'd all quote Acts 2.38. It was like... Peter never used regenerative new birth language in relation to Acts 2.38. He answered a very good question. But in terms of the new birth, I said, how are people born again? And the whole classroom, they were, they were engineered in life to, for this response. And I was like, no, you need to look at the text more carefully. And I had a guy sitting over here to my left, brand new convert to faith. And he goes, Peter said you're born again by the living and abiding word of God. Yes, thank you. That's, you, know, you know the text. You know what the text says. That's how we're born again. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the living and abiding Word of God. And I'm framing all that for the next sermon in John 3, because John 3 is so important about new birth. But I asked you this question this morning. Why, what is your hope? Your hope, according to the Bible, is in the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 2. Destroy this temple. Three days later, I'm coming back. You can't keep me down. That's our hope. How do I know I was born the first time? I mean, I, I could look at your birth certificate, but that could be faked. Um, I know you were born the first time because you're sitting here alive. You're breathing. You have life. It's a pretty good indication that you were born. I'm here. I'm, I'm alive. I'm breathing. What is the basis of your hope? It's that you were born a second time, not of flesh, but by the Spirit of God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, makes a big deal about the death and burial of Christ. I think a lot of times the resurrection kind of gets overlooked. And that's not true in all realms of Christianity. Eastern Orthodox religion, um, Christianity really makes a big deal of, of the resurrection. But Protestant Christians... Not, not so much. But that is, the, that is the basis of my hope. Jesus died and came back to life. And because of that, you have new life. You had no hope. Now you had hope. And your hope is not tied to the economy. It's not tied to your circumstances or your feelings. It's tied to something that happened 2,000 years ago, and it is yet relevant and life-changing for today. God raised the man, Jesus the Messiah, from the dead. He exalted him at the right hand of the Father. He gave him the promise of the Holy Spirit. We are buried with Christ in baptism, and then Jesus baptizes us with his Spirit. I have hope. I don't care what yesterday looked like. I have hope. I don't care what tomorrow holds. I have hope. I abide in him, and he abides in me, and I am in union with Christ. This life will not always keep on like it is. We read that in Psalm 39 this morning. It's very short. Whatever's troubling you today won't trouble you very long because we are here for a moment. It won't keep on. But not only is Christ resurrected, but everyone who dies in Christ is going to be resurrected. And I close this morning with the reading of the Apostle Paul. There's a lot here, but this will be, this will be what I close with. Just think about what Paul's saying. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. 
just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, talking about Adam, the first man, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, talking about Jesus. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. This is sleep here is talking about death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. To be a Christian is to believe that people who died in Christ in the future are going to come back to physical life. The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And now he's quoting from scripture. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this word. We love scripture. We love reading your word. We want to be Bible people. We want to be people who when we hear something that doesn't seem to agree with scripture that we know immediately it's right because we know our Bibles. We know truth. We know revealed truth. And we thank you that we even have access to your word today. And not only your word, but your spirit that is here. The thing this morning that I pray for most is that someone would walk out of here with more hope than they walked in with because we are prone as people to tie hope to a lot of other circumstances. But we know after this morning that our hope is in the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that someday our Lord Jesus is going to return to this earth to establish and consummate and finish what He started 2,000 years ago, Lord. And we are going to be in fellowship with Him and we are going to be with Him and have the ability to worship Him throughout all eternity. And Lord, we don't know if we'll live to see that day, but if we don't, if we die in Christ before then, Paul said to, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I'll be with Jesus if I die. And that's hope too. And then at that time of resurrection when Christ returns, I'll live again and be with Him forever. And that's what it means, Lord. And we know that's what it means to really be a believer, to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, to be a worshiper is that we have hope that nothing in this world can take away. Lord, and in the midst of all the clamor and the chaos that is in this world today, let us know you, let us walk with you, and let us abide in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you this morning.